0: David doesn't mention much about free will in the beginning of infinity, um, but, but it is mentioned. and it's, And it's mentioned in the context of creativity. And I'm really attracted to this idea that human choice is indeed a product of creativity. And it certainly informed my own thinking on this whole idea. I don't know how to divorce free will from choices, that if choice exists in the world, and uh, then, then if choice exists in the world and we are the agents that do the choosing, then we have free will. Our will, the thing that we want, is free to choose among these things. Now it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be if, of course, as many people observe, if someone coerced you in some way, then your will is less free. You want to do X, but you're not allowed to do X fear of violence or something else fear of death perhaps so you can't do x so your will has been constrained to do something else you don't really have the free will that you did and so i think free will is this spectrum this these degrees of freedom that you have and and importantly with human beings unlike with say dogs or cats okay you have the, the, the classy experiment figure out what um what 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 food the dog likes and so you put out two different kinds of food and you let the dog go to the one that it prefers did the dog really make a choice well in one sense it kind of did because there were two things there in existence but it did really contemplate or did it just rely upon what its genes were telling it to do are we any different in this case we are because unlike with the dog We can choose to create something completely new that isn't there before us. And that choice itself, that choice to actually do, go through the effort of creating, is itself a free choice that we don't have to make. One can consider when, you know, in a similar situation, in the evening, you you want to have dinner, you've got a certain number of things in the fridge, there's a certain number of ways in which you could combine them into interesting meals, you can choose among them, that's a free choice, but you could also choose to do something completely different and go to the supermarket and buy some more ingredients, or to call up a restaurant and get something delivered, so on and so forth, etc, etc. We really can create new choices, bring new choices into the world. This is our creativity in action, and the act of choosing among these things is what I would regard as free will. So I I just regard um, creativity, choices, and free will, and this capacity to explain the world as all intimately linked. None of them have good explanations. And so it's for this reason I kind of agree with David where he says elsewhere in the book that they might all come along for the ride in the one jump to universality, that as soon as you have this jump to explanatory universality, people being universal explainers, then all of those things come along, including consciousness as well, perhaps. We don't know. But the point is that it seems like a parsimonious idea that these are all facets of the one deep profound mystery of what human personhood is about. We're conscious. We're creative. We make choices in the world. We do those freely. Um, and so perhaps whatever the ultimate explanation is of these things or what, whatever the explanation of the future is that enables us to create artificial general intelligence, that we will recognize that these words that we use, creativity, consciousness, free will, whatever, that all of these things will come together in some way. We'll have a better understanding of each of them and the ways in which they are real. But I say that they're real. One reason I say that they're real is because they are unavoidably part of the explanation of what it is that people are doing. It's an explanation of their behavior, an explanation of how it is they create science and civilization and everything else that trying to remove any of them causes more problems than it solves. You're left wondering if you think something like um, creativity isn't some kind of deep mystery, um, that in fact all we need is ever more um, faster hardware and eventually we'll achieve escape velocity, we'll have artificial intelligence that is creative and more creative than us, and it's just a matter of processing power, which is... It seems to be the most popular idea right now, okay? The, 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 this Nick Bostrom um, singularity idea that all we need is faster processing, and once we've got sufficient amount of processing, sufficient amount of memory, so on and so forth, then we will have an agent that is able to think faster than us about anything at all, better than us, and therefore the problem of creativity is solved at the hardware, um, at the hardware level. Uh, many of us think that is completely wrong. That assumes a solution to what creativity is. It sidelines creativity and says creativity is no deep mystery, that, that we are just um, uh, processes with some memory and there's nothing particularly special about the software. Of course, what The Beginning of Infinity teaches us, what David Deutsch's main point is in a lot of this, is that the hardware has very little to do with this mystery at all. It's all about the software. This is the great mystery. We have this algorithm running on our brains that is able to uh, improve itself over time and improve its understanding of the world over time as well. And it can augment itself with technology. Um, but it's got nothing to do with how fast we can think. Um, the computer can think faster than us, but it's not more creative than us right now. But but of all of these... Um, uh, qualities, I would say, of the human mind, which may be synonymous one with another. Creativity, choices, consciousness, um, the ability to be a universal explainer, free will. That last one, the free will one, is the most contentious one, it seems to me. Maybe consciousness is up there as well. And as I've observed elsewhere, um, there are certain philosophers who will deny free will, but regard some of the other aspects of this as deeply mysterious. Uh, Sam Harris, who I respect very much and love to listen to on this particular topic, uh, has written a book, A Vehement Defense of the Idea We Do Not Have Free Will. Simultaneously, he also argues that the deepest mystery in the universe, aside from the existence of the universe itself, is the fact that we are conscious. So as he dismisses the free will issue, uprises consciousness as being a profound and deep mystery. And he says that his subjective experience of consciousness reveals to him that free will doesn't exist, that you do not have a subjective experience of consciousness. And here all I can say to that is we would just have to disagree because I do have a subjective experience of consciousness. Now, if you meditate and clear your mind of everything, it should be no surprise to you that it seems as if you have no free will because it then seems as if the thoughts are arising unbidden by you. But if you are really trying not to concentrate and actively trying to dampen down your thinking, then of course it will feel as though, it'll be a sensation, and this is, this is a theme running through Sam's philosophy, this idea of feelings, that you have the sensation or the experience of not having free will or the absence of free will. I'm unsurprised that you feel as though you've got an absence of free will when you're not thinking, when you're not trying to think hard about what to choose to do next. But if you try to be conscious of the choices before you, I think that in those moments, and you can be mindful in your conscious experience of the present moment, I think you will find that you can experience the very real sensation of actually having choices in the world, and that you will freely be able to choose one thing over another. But this takes us um, far and wide away from where I want to go with this chapter, just to say that almost in any of these debates where people end up at loggerheads about the existence of free will or not... I think we can happily grant to people, okay, I'll agree with you that your form of free will doesn't exist, okay, for the purpose of moving forward and making progress on this particular question. What's the particular question? The deep, profound mystery that almost everyone interested in this topic will agree is there somewhere. So Sam might think, well, it's not there in free will. Okay, fine. It's there in consciousness. Then I agree. I think we need to solve that. That, That's a really important thing to solve now daniel dennett of course um, as many of us when we've read his book interpret him to be saying that consciousness is no deep mystery um, and so he 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 dampens down consciousness but what rises up for him is free will he's a compatibilist and he says well this is a a mystery um, it's it's compatible with the deterministic laws of physics which is my view as well um, so it, it tends to be the case, and Jaron Lanier makes makes this point as well, that when people deny one mysterious aspect of reality, it tends to crop up unbidden somewhere else in their uh, ontology, you know, what they think um, reality consists of in some way. And he uses the, the example of um, the nature of personhood, that if you dismiss the deep mystery that is what it means to be a person, what a person is, and the fact that a person is, in his words, an infinite well of mystery, which is this, this idea that tries to capture the fact that we don't have an answer to what a person is. We can't program computers to be people. He agrees with David Deutsch there. He says that people who dismiss that as being some sort of deep mystery tend to find themselves uh, caught up in uh, concerns or confusions about what the present moment means because the people who dismiss the deep mystery of personhood are often uh, reductionists in the physicalist sense. They see a block universe, as general relativity might say, that the the past times and the future times, as well as the present time, are all just instances of times. There's just times off into the 13.7 billion years into the past and off into the uh, extreme, deep, distant future. But there's no privileged times, Yesterday is just as real as today as tomorrow in, a, in this universe described by special relativity, um, this block universe. All of the times exist in some way and none of them are privileged. That's the picture we get. It's just your perspective, okay? If you're on the other side of the universe, then the time that you see is not simultaneous with my time. We get into this deep questions of physics, right? But a person who believes... Um, that there's no mystery there, then has to try and explain why it is that now, here, for you, things are special. Something is different. The present moment is illuminated in a way that yesterday is not. That you don't experience yesterday in the same way that you experience today, right now. You only experience now, now. (laughs) So there's this weird mystery um, that exists in the universe about why the present moment is different to other moments. Why you experience the present moment is different to other moments. This is what Jaron Lanier says about people who try to deny the deep mystery of consciousness. It tends to crop up in this other way. And so too, I would say, with any of these questions about creativity or free will or choice um, and consciousness. And I've made this point before about if you live in any city around the world and you look around, then what you see is less due to the action of purely deterministic physical forces, you know, in the case of Sydney, the action of geological weathering and erosion over time uh, eroded out the Sydney Basin. And I've made this point before. But if you look at the city skyline of Sydney, and I'll come back to this shortly with a specific example, you look at the city skyline of Sydney, trying to use our natural sciences, in order to explain what's going on there, the appearance, what we see in this picture of the Sydney CBD, trying to use geology, or plain physics, in order to explain any of this, is going to be a fruitless exercise. You're going to miss the point if you try and use those natural sciences. You need to use the proper explanation. Why does Sydney look like this? Well, the reason Sydney looks like this, and there's a number of buildings there that are prominent, but let's take um, Sydney Tower there, which is the tallest um, building, at least as of today, in Sydney. Someone chose to build that thing, and someone chose to design it that way. Someone created the design, and then people came together and freely decided that they would put their efforts in to constructing and raising this thing up into the sky. That's the explanation. The the geology and the physics kind of by the by. Um, They're the things that the people choose to use uh, to, to, to take advantage of their knowledge of those things in order to build structures like this. So if we seek to explain and not merely describe in terms of deterministic laws, then we must invoke creativity and various other abstract realities. Reality is indeed a unified whole. Of course, reality is a unified whole. But at the same time, we can divide it up into different, in different ways. Um, space-time and matter and energy, or fundamental particles and emergent objects like cats and galaxies, or the physical and the abstract. And these various ways of, of dividing up reality, of dividing things up, don't privilege one aspect over and above the other. It is as correct to say that the cat is moving the atoms from A to B as it is to say that the cat moves from A to B because the atoms making up its body do. But there is a real distinction between, and this is another way of dividing up reality, explaining something in terms of things that exist and having an in-principle description of what the particles are doing. And I've made this point with people recently, and I, I, I guess I am going off on this tangent a little bit much, um, but let me just harp on again for a moment about this. The explanation as to why, at the higher emergent level, that certain things occur is really the explanation. It is not the fact that certain things were determined to have happened because the Big Bang happened and the laws of motion acted upon particles over time and caused them to appear where they appeared today. That is not an explanation. That is an, in principle, you would be able to describe the motion of those particles and where they end up today, and so this is why the fabric of reality, Winston Churchill, copper atom story is just so deeply profound, and I think escapes sometimes the uh, escapes discussions on this topic. Let's just recap that, and you can you can fast forward the next five or ten minutes as I go through this yet again, but but let me try and refine it in a certain way. The, the, the situation is this. There is a statue in Parliament Square in London of Winston Churchill, and at the tip of that statue is a copper atom. Why is the copper atom there? Now, on the one hand, you can say that, well, the copper atom is there for the same reason that any atom is anywhere right now. And any atom is anywhere right now because 13.7 billion years in the past, approximately, the Big Bang occurred, and all of matter and space and energy exploded out from that point, and eventually some of it, over millions of years, coalesced into stars, the first generation of stars. At the end of their lives, some of them exploded in supernova supernovae, explosions, and scattered their contents across a wide region of space, and some of those atoms, due to astrophysical processes, were copper atoms. Those copper atoms then coalesced, mixing with the hydrogen, helium, and the intergalactic space. And some of them formed new stars. And some of them formed planets as well, like the Earth. And so the Earth formed out of this previously exploded star or stars and contains copper. And the copper atom, again, under the forces of nature, under gravity and electromagnetism and so on and so forth, weathering and erosion, ended up in uh, a certain place where it was quarried and the forces of nature eventually caused it to end up at the tip of Winston Churchill's nose, um, and that's why that copper atom is there, due to deterministic physical laws. That's not an explanation. That's a general purpose statement about any particular bit of matter anywhere in the entire universe. And when people try to invoke this, to explain away something like free will, for example, and try to say it couldn't have been a free choice because you were determined to do what you were determined to do, because at the Big Bang, the laws of physics that were there are still acting right now, and you have to obey these deterministic laws in the same way that the copper atom had to obey a deterministic law to end up where it did it completely misses the point about what an explanation truly is. Free will is not an attempt to get outside of the laws of physics. It's an attempt to explain what is really going on in the context of a deterministic universe. In the context of a deterministic universe, we have species arising that didn't arise before. But no biologist should be tempted to say... Well, there's no such thing as evolution by natural selection. Evolution by natural selection doesn't really create new species. All that's happening is atoms are following deterministic laws of physics. That would be ridiculous, and I don't think any physicist makes this point. I don't think any scientist, no biologist makes this point. What they say is the explanation of the origin of species is evolution by natural selection. It's this emergent concept that these things called species exist, this thing called selection exists, and that niches are filled, or niches, as some people say, by organisms that are fittest in that particular environment. And if the environment changes, the genes are selected against, and the species can sometimes go extinct, to be filled by new species with genes that are fitter for that particular environment. That's an explanation. It's an emergent explanation. but all, And all of those things are real. They're really happening. Selection is really happening. Adaptation is really happening. Niches really exist and species really exist and fill those niches. Now, in in precisely the same way, all we have to say is that the reason why, for example, the copper atom is at the tip of Winston Churchill's nose, the explanation of that is that there was a war called the Second World War involving... Two sides of great powers, dominant among them the United Kingdom and Germany, the leaders of whom were Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill, and Winston Churchill eventually won the war for his side. And so we like to, out of respect, remember great heroes who saved civilization, one of whom was Winston Churchill and as whom we learned recently, uh, Karl Popper thought was a great epistemologist. Uh, go back to a previous episode for that one. Um, Winston Churchill, is his statue is there with a copper atom at its nose because we make statues out of bronze so that they don't weather away quite so quickly. But someone chose to build that statue, chose to design it in that way. In fact, groups of people came to that decision freely chose to do so, and trying to eliminate choice and freedom out of that whole picture is to break what would otherwise be a good explanation. Because if we try and say it's merely determined by physical laws, deterministic laws, then we've missed the entire point of trying to explain what's going on in the real world. This reductionist uh, conception of how it is that reality evolves over time is simply, it's not false, but it simply misses the point. It's true vacuously. We can always say that anything that happens was determined to happen. It doesn't get us very far. Um, In denying the supernatural, we don't have to embrace pure reductionist physicalism. We can take another avenue where we say, yes, of course, physics is fundamentally true. It's correct as a description of reality. But it doesn't explain everything that's going on. And besides, the strange thing is that for someone who says they could, in principle, in principle, predict what a person is going to do next, or predict what is going to happen next, if they had a full description of the laws of physics and the initial conditions, is doing nothing, in my opinion, but invoking the supernatural. Because what is this thing that is able to actually do that predicting? Well, an oracle with the full knowledge of the laws of physics. Well, this oracle is basically the omniscient, theistic God, the God that knows everything that's going to happen, the God that created the universe and knows everything that's going to happen. So it is a, an appeal to the supernatural. Now, someone might say, oh, no, well, we don't need that. Maybe we can just have a supercomputer of the future. I doubt it. Um, this supercomputer of the future would have to calculate all of the different alternatives that could possibly happen in countless numbers of universes. And it would have to know with perfect precision what the initial conditions are at any particular given time, so that it can make this deterministic prediction. But we know from physics you cannot have a perfect understanding of the conditions at any particular time. For all the atoms in the universe, we're going to have a perfect understanding of where exactly they are. We know that's not possible, given the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, among other things. But we know that we can't have this complete knowledge simultaneously of every single atom in the entire universe. Relativity for another reason. So this idea that we could in principle, in principle have this predictive mechanism that would allow us to determine exactly what's going to happen next, is itself an appeal to the supernatural. The device required in order to do this would be magical. It would have to have all the qualities that an omniscient creator of the universe would have. And so this is why I reject this idea that in principle, the idea that we could... Um, with full knowledge of the laws of physics and full knowledge of the initial conditions, predict what's going to happen next, therefore you don't have free will, I think is false. Because I don't think such an in-principle argument has any bearing on the reality of free will when, in practice, it will never be possible. It will never be possible because no such device can do such a measurement of all the particles in the entire universe. It would have to be A god of some sort. Okay, that takes me far away from anything to do with this chapter again.